We're glad you're here. We're excited that you're here. It's a good time. It's a good season. Yeah, come on. We have our uh, crew back from Israel. We had some people come, go to Israel for 10 days. They enjoyed that, which is exciting. We'll, we'll be hearing more about that. We have other opportunities for that. We've got a crew right now of about six people in our church in uh, Ireland right now, right? Including our campus minister, Sarah. So uh, Earl's all by himself. Bro, I love you, man. You, you come get some home cooking, bro. And, uh, but it's, you know, it's a good season. It's a good time. In fact, it's so good. Uh, we're going to continue with our series today in DNA. In DNA Next week, you get to hear from my lovely, awesome wife as she talks and brings a powerful word about establishing foundations. And so I thought I'd give you guys a break since I've done plenty of foundations work. You get to hear it from someone much nicer looking to look at than me. So uh, I, did, I did iron my shirt this morning, but this is early service, man. I mean, it just it got early this morning. So... Hey, we are in our series, we started last week, DNA. And DNA, the core of the local church, the idea of DNA is that all of us from conception have a DNA code within us. And it's gonna tell you your eye color, your height, your hair, your gender. It has a story behind it. Your DNA does. It's going to tell the story of you. And so we're taking these next four weeks to explain the story of City Life Church and how we go about doing the things that we do. Last week, we started talking about what we call our vision frame. If you missed it, um, I'll go over it super quick. So the way we construct the things that we do, because church is more than just a good service. I promise I work more than one day a week. Um, we have strategy and passion in order to help you grow in your relationship with God, because we want to see you Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, socially responsible. And we put a lot of thought and strategy and everything we do goes into buckets in order to get us to that place. And this is kind of the way we look at things. So we have a mission, we have strategy, we have values, and we have mission measures, and then looking through a vision proper. Each one of these has a specific question I talked about last week. Uh, what are we doing as our mission strategy? How are we going about doing it? Um, and then values. What do we value as we go about doing that? Um, so the behaviors we value as we go about on our mission. And then we have mission measures. How do we know we're successful? What are some specific things we're going after? And then our vision proper. Where is God taking us within the next two to 10 years? And we ultimately want to plan another church and continue to grow. We're probably looking at three services coming up in this location here pretty soon, um, looking at Easter. So God has been continuing to grow us and move us and we're excited about what God is doing, but it's all about the mission of God. And if you're not familiar, we talk about this all the time. Go to the next slide. Our mission here at City Life Church is that we exist in order to honor God first and foremost, but we do that. How do we honor God? By establishing Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, socially responsible churches and campus ministries. Come on, campus. In every nation, every nation is the group that we are a part of, um, that is our spiritual family, and we have churches all over the globe. And our passion is to continue to increase what God is doing. And we, we say it this way, honor God and make disciples. Now, when we say make disciples, go to the next slide. What, what is a disciple? Go to the next, next, yeah, next, next. One more. Good, good. What is a disciple? The way we would determine or define a disciple is someone who's Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, and socially responsible. Now, that's what a disciple is, but how then do we create and make disciples? That's the whole point of church. And the way we specifically do it is we start by engaging the culture. 
Then once you've been engaged with the gospel and the message of Christ, we want to establish you in biblical foundations. Every home, every venture, every dream needs some kind of foundation to build on. We don't wanna stay at just the foundation because nobody loves to stare at a foundation. The goal is to build something on that foundation and then that's how we equip you, equip you to believers to minister in order to do the gospel of the kingdom, not just reserve it to staff or pastors, but everybody has a gift, has a calling in this room given by God in order to advance the kingdom of God. And we wanna equip you and help you. And then the bottom, we wanna empower you. And then we empower disciples to make disciples. That means giving you authority or giving you leadership and having some specific places that we go for social responsibility and church planning. And then ultimately we're empowering you to engage the culture and community. Today, we're going to start with this concept of engaging the culture. Tomorrow, or I'm sorry, not tomorrow. Not, not tomorrow. You can come tomorrow. But um, next week, we're going to be hitting establish and then equip and then empower. So you can get an idea of how we go about doing and really the conviction behind why we even have this specific strategy as a church. Let's talk about engage for a second. When you think about engage, the question is, what are you engaging the culture with? You know, if you have a, you know, a, a round peg in a, in a square hole, it doesn't work. And so what is the actual tool? What is the thing that we're engaging the culture with? And I, I would say it this way, just like everybody's DNA tells a story about who they are, who they're going to be, you live by a story. In fact, this week I was reminded one of the stories I lived by, because we had, we had one of those weeks, you know, where like the dryer goes out, our cars go out. Um, Jackson, this was a couple of weeks ago, actually, um, was trying to throw something at my older son. So my seven-year-old was throwing something at my 15-year-old and he hit the TV and it broke, uh, right? So we're, we're still, we're watching TV still, but it's just lines everywhere. We're just like, hey, I'm sure Sports Center is really good. Um, and it's just one of the, I mean, $3,500 we spent this week, right? Just on problems. And I was talking to my kids about it because they're like, we want to do this. And we're like, okay, next, we'll wait. we're going to wait. And, and I told them the story. You've probably heard this adage before. When it rains, it pours. Now that's a story we tell ourselves, And it's true a lot of times because you feel like that. You ever felt like that? Like, gosh, it just won't relent. Oh my goodness, what is going on? But that is a story that is to be believed. Because it's not always that way, but it feels like that at the time. But see, that story gives a rhetoric and it gives a narrative and it gives me something to think about or to put myself in a specific, specific position. And all of us are constantly telling ourselves a story. We're living out a story every day of our lives. The scary part about living out a story, even especially in culture today, is we have so many stories to think about and to believe or to try to discern what is believable anymore. Anybody watch news in the past month? What is believable? I don't know who to believe and I want to trust and, and, and the victim or, or the person and what, what do I do and let's, let's get the evidence and let's try to figure things out because there's so many stories in fact. I remember in 2018, just last year, that you would have on the same kind of Facebook feed or social media feed or news feed, you would have, what color is this dress, right? And like that thing, and everybody's like, oh, it's this color, it's white, it's flower, it's blue. It's... And then at the same page, you would have some type of war or social injustice happening. And it's like, 
I, I don't know about you, but I get a little digital fatigue, even sometimes digital anxiety. I heard of a guy who was in Hawaii. Uh, I was listening to a podcast this week, and he was in Hawaii in May. And uh, he's enjoying Hawaii and having a good time, and he gets a text, starts getting texts from all these people. And they're going, oh, my gosh, are you okay? Are you okay? And he's like, what? And they're like, there was, a, there was an earthquake in Hawaii. Are you okay? And he didn't even hardly feel it, didn't know what was going on. And yet digitally all over the world, people are texting him from what they heard with digital anxiety, trying to figure out what is happening. Because we have so many stories. We have so many things. Most of the stuff we probably don't even need to talk about. Look, LeBron is not the goat. I'm just going to end that right there. <laughs> I like LeGron fine, but MJ, baby, all the way. Like, so stop talking about it. Stop talking about it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Let's, let's pray and go home. That's really, uh, that's the story you need today. But we have all of these stories. And in fact, I mentioned this in foundations class. If you came to the first class, what's crazy is there was a story in May 2016 in Houston, Texas, and we had an anti-Muslim protest and a pro-Muslim protest right at the footsteps of the Fiddler's <laughs> condo area, whatever it's called. Right there on Travis Street in Maine. And it's interesting what happened because there was a, two Facebook groups, one that was pro-Muslim, one that was anti-Muslim, that started gathering all this attention and came on and yeah, yeah, rah, rah, rah. And then they created a protest for the anti and the pro, and they started yelling back and forth at each other. And there was somebody like in the fifth story blowing bubbles just randomly out in the street, right? <laughs> Welcome to Houston, right? <laughs> Houston Chronicle actually covered this, and look what they said. Separated by Travis Street and the Houston police, the two groups shouted at each other. The pro-Islamic center counter-protesters had a loudspeaker and were able to drown out the other side which was way smaller, by the way, the other side, the white supremacist kind of side. That was on y'all's side of the street, sorry. That's nothing against you guys. Y'all didn't start this. They, Scott's blowing bubbles like, it's okay, guys. <laughs> Neither realized that none of the organizers of both events were even there. That's because they were both thousands of miles away in St. Petersburg, Russia at the time. We found out two years later, at least to the public, in 2018, that you know who started that Facebook group and a lot of the Facebook groups, not all, a lot of Facebook groups and began that protest was Russian trolls. Russian trolls, it's true. And it's happening. And now, now, this is not to say there's not a racism problem or a misogynistic problem in our country. We definitely have that because we are humans and we are dumb and we've done stupid things. And that happens and it's horrible and it's deplorable and all the words you want to think about. Yet they didn't start it, but they know how to continue it and to propagate it with propaganda and to continue to push it forward in order to cause disunity. Because here's the deal. If I can pick you out and put you in a certain category to despise you, I will dismiss you. And that is the trick. That is the trick of all warfare ultimately. We don't have as much hard warfare. It's happening, but most of it's soft warfare. It's in the mind, and, and it started, listen, not from Russia. Russia does it, but we've done it in America, haven't we? You've done any studies of any war we propagate something in order to cause division in order to get them to fight each other. And it's a strategy. And yet, 
It's happening a lot in our country, and it's dividing us into class and groups and race, and it's causing more and more anxiety, and there's a story that's trying to be told. What are you going to believe? Do we believe every story? What do we believe? What story do I hold on to to live my life with? Because a lot of us in here have a story, and we're holding on to it so hard, and it's not a very good story. It might not even be believable. It might not even be true. What is the story we're supposed to engage culture with? What is the story we're supposed to live by? It's hard to know in our culture because we all have so many different ones. And the goal is just to divide and conquer. And it's been the goal from the beginning. You look at Genesis at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, there's an enemy and there's, he's with spiritual warfare. It's the same kind of soft warfare with ideas and saying, did God really say? This is the story he tried to get into Adam and Eve from creation to doubt the true story and the love of a father and God. And they bought into it hook, line, and seeker. And what it did is it crushed relationship and trust between man and God and man and creation and man and man and, of course, man and woman. And that story has continued to be told and continued to be believed, and it is at the very foundation and the core of the problem with us. But what's the right story? What do I believe? And it depends on where you are because it's a scary time right now in the sense of there's so many stories, there's so many things out there. How do we know what is real and what is right? There was a recent study done conducted by Barna Group and the creators of Alpha Course, and they said this, nearly half from the study, 47% of practicing Christian millennials, which is considered churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives, nearly, nearly half, 47%, believe that evangelism is just wrong. Telling the story of God is wrong. Specifically, they say it, is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And the reason and the impetus behind this ultimately among those millennials is not just a fear of being wrong or anything, but it's a fear of appearing judgmental. Now the question is, is, is evangelism like a subtle form of spiritual pride being shared, or is it actually compassion? I think this is the scary part for me because in some ways, uh, we, I talked to Justin and Rachel about this a little bit because as, as millennials, they're like, we, just, we, we get it. We, don't, we, we want to have a relationship with someone before we share the gospel with them. So sharing with strangers is hard. And I, I think everybody can test that in this room. But also, I, I agree with that in one way, but also I would say, what story do we have to tell and if we feel like our story is just judgmental, of course we're not going to share it. But is that the story of God? Is it just the story of turn or burn, be judged, we hate you, get right? Is that our story? Is that the tool we have to engage culture? And I think for some it is, but I think it's scary. We don't have a better story. Can I tell you a better story today? There's a better story that actually gives you compassion and passion to want to share and adopt the story of God. Many of you are familiar with the story. Jesus is probably the greatest storyteller. In fact, he came and didn't just give bullet points on about God and the kingdom of God. He shared stories. 
In fact, parables, because parable is like an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's one kind of way to put it. But the ultimate idea is if I can get a story in your heart to understand, you can take walking towards that without even having a bullet point understanding of everything because you can adopt and understand a story because we live by story. You grew up, you have a family, you have a culture that's a part of your story. But your story doesn't end with you. And if it does, it's not a good story because it's just about you. Jesus comes in and says, man, I got a good story for you guys. Open your Bible. Turn on your Bible. Mine's on. Luke chapter 15. Many of you are familiar with this story. Some of you are not. Some of you need to be re-familiarized with it. Sometimes, like, I'm not a, I, I like VeggieTales. My kids watch VeggieTales, but we got to get the vegetation out of some of these stories because, like, you think you know the story, so you kind of moved on. Uh, and gosh, like, it's amazing. If you're in here and you've never heard this story, bless you. That's awesome. You don't have to go through some of these things. Let's just listen to the story that Jesus presents. Now, let's start Luke chapter 15, verse 1. It's important to get the setting and the context of who's there and who, who is Jesus talking to. Now the tax collectors, say tax collectors, and sinners. So this side of the room, you are tax collectors and sinners, got it? You excited? You're welcome. We're all drawing near to him. Y'all love Jesus. You're like, something about this guy, he's got a story. He's got a life that thinks he's saying, the things he's doing. It's all a part of him. I'm after this dude. And the Pharisees and scribes, that's you guys, sorry. <laughs> Pharisees and scribes, you know the law, you know the Bible. You got this thing down. They were grumbling, saying, you can say this, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You look how popular he is, all these people. These sinners, these horrible people. And so Jesus being fully man, fully God, knows what's in their heart, and he tells them a story. Now we're gonna skip down to the story. Remember, there's two types of groups in this story. That's very essential to understanding the story and what Jesus is doing because he's very understandable and strategic when he shares something. Here's the story he shares. And he said, there was a man who had how many sons? Two. two. Two different types of people. Two sons. You've heard of this story, maybe the prodigal son, but it's actually the prodigal sons. And I'm going to show you by the end, it's not even about them. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Now stop. You have to understand the patriarchal culture that is in first century and that he's talking to. As he's sharing this story, this tale, in order to counter the argument of why Jesus is even with sinners and rebellious people and what is going on, he starts with this story and there's two sons and there's a father and the younger son comes to him and says, give me what is mine. I want my inheritance. Now at that time, an inheritance wouldn't be going to your bank account. It would be selling your land. 
And the dad would have to sell a portion of his own land, his own creation that is his, and give it to that son. And what's crazy is he did it. So right away, if you're listening to the story, you're going, okay, you got me. Because here's the crazy part about it. In a culture that is a very shame and honor culture, for a son to say, I want my stuff and I want it now. You know that commercial. (laughs) For a son to do that to his father is equivalent to saying, I wish you were dead. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Because he wouldn't get his inheritance until his father died. I wish you were dead. And in that culture, it would have been better if, if, they, if he found out his son was a serial killer. I'm telling you, true story. Than to completely dismiss his father and the relationship and the love of a son. I don't want to be your son. I don't want to have anything to do with you. But I sure want your stuff. Sell it and give it to me. And the father does it. Right away you're going, what kind of dad is this? This is crazy. He should have killed him in that culture. What kind of son would do this? This is the extreme of two ends. And he divided his property between the verse 13. Now, many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. I'm going to get my stuff. I'm going. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He squandered everything. He lost everything. And now he's going, oh, man, what am I going to do? So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Stop. He gets to the end of himself. He doesn't decide to repent even at the end of himself when he loses everything. He doesn't decide, I'm going to go back to my father because I'm done. There's no way I'm going back to my father. I'm just going to like pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to gain it back. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be okay. And even that doesn't work to where look what happens to him. He longs just for a meal as he's watching pigs eat their slop. I wish I even just had that. And it's not even that that got him to the end of his rope, but look at what he says, and no one gave him anything. Listen, he didn't just lose all of his stuff, but he lost any signs of relationship. No one was there for him. He, he dismissed the relationship for the stuff and then he squandered the stuff and had nothing left and no one loved him and wanted to be with him anymore unless he had the stuff. And he realized for the first time, I'm alone. It's not just losing all my stuff now. I've lost people, relationship, everything. Look what happens, verse 17. But when he came to himself, again, he didn't come to himself When he lost everything he squandered, he came to himself when he finally realized he was at the rock bottom of relationships and need. Look what he says. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? He's thinking about, man, I'm sitting here serving under this dude and I don't have anything, man. My father, maybe he wasn't so bad because he took care of even the servants, much less his son's. He says, but I, I, I'm hungry. I'm perishing here with hunger. Here's what I'm going to do. I will arise and go to my father 
I've hit so rock bottom, I'm going to risk my life. I could show up and he could kill me, but it doesn't matter. And I'm going to say this to him. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You ever had a really difficult conversation to have with somebody? Yeah? If you're a pastor, that's like weekly. And the way we rehearse a lot, this is the shower, like, oh, I'm going to say this. Okay, this is what we're going to do. And I'm trying to articulate. I'm trying to get it down. I'm trying to memorize it. So I say things right and clear because it's going to be a hard conversation. So I'm just rehearsing it, rehearsing it, rehearsing. This is what he's doing. Let's read again what he said. Father, I've sinned. This is repentance against heaven and before you. Against God and you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Obviously, I left sonship, but I realize I'm not even worthy. So just treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. He's on his way. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Again, you're listening to the story that Jesus is sharing, two different types of people. And you're hearing what this son did in a shame on our culture. He should be killed, dismissed, despised. And it says the father saw him from a long way off. That means he was looking for him. He was waiting for him. He was longing for him. And he didn't have disdain and judgment, but he had compassion. Well, this is a good story. If you're the son, what kind of father through all that would have compassion? Not only that, he ran. In that culture, men don't run. They have got, they've got these drapes down here. These, and then they run. They're going to be exposing themselves. You don't run in that culture, much less as a father, as a dad, as a man. He ran unashamed. I don't care. This is what I've been longing for. I want my kid back. I want my son back. He had compassion. He ran. He didn't hit him. He didn't throw him in prison. He embraced him and kissed him. And the son, imagine, oh, said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, did he finish his speech? We heard a speech, no longer worthy to be called your son. Make, make me a slave. He didn't even get to that point. The father's not even listening to him. I don't care about your confession right now. I don't care about your rehearsed things. I'm just caring that you're here and you came back to me. And he doesn't even listen. He cuts him off. He's not waiting for the perfect words to be said even. He cuts him off. He says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. In other words, this is my son. When I put a robe on you, I'm saying, this is your new identity. You're not a slave. You're a son. You're not a castaway. You're not a wonder. You're a son. My ring, authority, you are my son. Shoes on his feet. I love this. And bring the fatted calf. When we're going to Sizzla, baby. We're, like, we're going to get some killings, some papas, start making something, kill that calf. Here we go. 
I used to like the sizzler. <laughs> and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And many of us in the story right there, we just go, man, what a great dad. And I think the sinners on this side are going, that's right, Jesus. That's why we like you, because you love us. You accept us. You're compassionate towards us. But that's not the whole story. See, there were two sons. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. What is he doing in the field? Anybody worked in a field on a farm and a ranch? Bro, that's not indoor living. AC, type in, man, my fingers are killing me. <laughs> right? Carpal tunnel. This is hard work, man. He's sweating. He's out there in the field with the servants. Work in the field. Why? Because it's his field. He's tending it. It's his inheritance. And as he came and drew near the house, he's on his way. He heard music and dancing. Right? He's just like, whoa, what is going on? And he called one of his servants and asked what these, these things meant. Notice he didn't find his dad. It's interesting. Grabs one of the servants. And, as, and he said to him, verse 27, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he was received him back safe and sound. But the older brother, he was angry and refused to go party, refused to celebrate. Verse 15, or uh, verse 28. So his father came out and entreated him. What's interesting about the father, when the younger son's far off, the father goes to him. When the older son is close but refuses to come in, the father goes to him too. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, didn't even call him my brother, this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Why is he so angry? Why is he so full of hate and rage and frustration? How many of you guys in this room are the oldest in your family? Oldest sibling? Anybody? Yeah? Any younger? Youngest? I'm kind of a mix of both because I, I, I was younger and then my parents divorced. My dad remarried and had two kids. So then I became the older. So I, I see both worlds a little bit. Um, you're welcome. Let me tell you something about, and in, in my top five, my strength finders, uh, responsibility is one of mine, so I get responsibility. Older brothers, older sisters, the eldest, the first, understands responsibility. We were probably harder, our parents were harder on us, because it's the first time they're like, oh, you know, doing all the things. 
But we had this sense of independence and responsibility and just taking care of things and making things in things. This is my oldest son for sure. Making things in order. And it's easy to stain that younger brother or sister because they're just like free and do whatever they want. And they just go out. They're just like, oh, I don't want to be bound by these things and these rules. And yet the older person, see, the older brother understands this. You obey the rules to get the stuff. Like we understand we're, we're rule followers because what the younger brother doesn't understand is if you actually follow the rules, you end up getting what you want. Like don't hate the player. I know the game, like I get it. And I'm gonna follow the rules because I'm gonna, man, I can manipulate, I can make it work. So you, you get in trouble and you have a curfew. I don't have a curfew because they trust me. It's interesting seeing these two different dynamics, again, thinking of sinners and rebellious and religious, extreme religious. And the two differences here that Jesus is now talking and the older brother who is looking at the dad with frustration and hate. Notice what he says to him. I've slaved, I've served you. I never disobeyed you. I did everything you asked. I followed all the rules. And yet you treat me like this. Notice, it's interesting. The older brother is a son and in the house and a part of everything, but he feels and calls himself a slave. He feels like a slave. What story was he believing? The younger brother left the relationship and sonship and came back, just wanted to be a slave. And the father adopted him again as a son. See, younger sons kind of just want their freedom and older brothers know the best way to get it is to follow the rules. It's interesting. The father's response. And he said to him, son, son, not slave, not servant, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It's right, it's fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, this your brother, not just my son, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found and Jesus leaves it there for both sides to go. Oh, here's what he's saying. Your brother squandered everything, took my stuff, but realized he wanted me in relationship and I'm calling him back. I want my kids. I want my son, my daughter. I want them. You had my stuff, but you didn't want a relationship with me. He got my stuff through demand and through his own freedom and rebellion, but you are trying to ma manipulate to get my stuff through obedience. Because at the core of who you are, older son, I love you. I call you a son. Everything I have is yours, but you don't want me. You too just want my stuff. You just go about doing it in a different way. Because the son's angry and he's looking at his dad in this way. What's interesting in that culture as well, 
in a kind of a primogenital type culture. It's a culture to where the firstborn son or the firstborn of the family would receive that inheritance and they would get a double portion of the inheritance. So the two sons here, the firstborn would get two thirds of the inheritance when the father passed and the youngest would get one third. So when the youngest came and said, I want my portion, he got one third. And what was left? The older brothers, all of his, that's it. So when the dad gave him a robe when he came back and a ring, what did he do? He just now split the older brother's portion again. Who has to sacrifice in order to bring the son in? The father has to sacrifice his shame and show love, but the older brother is the one writing the checks. Saying, who are you to kill the fatted cow? You won't even do anything for me. This is my deal. This is my land, and now I've got to split it again. I've got to sacrifice. And this is the moral of the story. It's not just a story about two sons. It's not just a story about you and me. This is a story ultimately about Jesus. Why? Because in that culture, it took the firstborn son to sacrifice with this story in order for the younger son to be brought back into relationship and family. It took a sacrifice. Who paid the sacrifice? The firstborn son. Jesus is looking at the crowd, the sinners. And I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. Like, come back. Come, like... Be, get to the end of yourself, the rock bottom of yourself and your own story where you think you can just take and get and come back to the Father because the Father's all about relationship. He just wants his kids back. And he turns to the religious and he says, you don't look at them at, with disdain because you have the same problem. You just want my stuff. You don't want me. Therefore, you wouldn't sacrifice your stuff to get him back. But the greater brother, the greater older brother, the true only begotten first, only son of God is preaching a great story to these people and saying, I'm that older brother coming to save the lost and to bring both religious and irreligious and rebellious into my home into the fold and I will sacrifice my very life if it means you can now be sons and daughters of the Father again. Who would sacrifice? The religious community wouldn't. The rebellious is needing the sacrifice. And Jesus says, I'll go. This is the message of the gospel. And this is the story that engages hearts and changes our lives. I mean, the, I see myself as the older brother in that story because I was just religious and trying to earn things from God. And when I did good, I felt really good and felt like I could pray. And when I did bad, I felt like, well, I don't deserve it because I haven't done anything to put God in my merit. So I'm not going to pray. I can't lift my hands in worship because I've looked at a girl lustfully. So I feel horrible about myself. What do I do? I'm still depending on my own righteousness, my own way and religion to deserve something from God because I can at least say, I earned it, God. Now give me what I'm asking. A blessed life, good things, a spouse, a job, 
whatever we pray for, I deserve it because I've done right. And Jesus would come on the scene and Paul would later say, see, all have fallen short of the glory of God because we want stuff, we don't want him. And he's all about bringing us back to him. And he leaves with the religious people going, are you gonna stay outside or are you gonna come and party with us? The son got brought in by pure grace and you need that same grace too, come in. It says, come in. And I think that's the cry. That's why we engage the culture to say, this isn't a story of God just killing you. He killed his own son for you in order to sacrifice so that you could come back into the family of God, so that you could be a son and a daughter. That is the most engaging story in the story. You not only, no, only need to learn how to tell, but you need to live and adopt as your story. Because this will now get rid of all the identity politics and social constructs that are trying to divide us because I don't care what you look like. I don't even care ultimately what you act like. There's a God who came to sacrifice to love you and he's calling you to himself. Repent, come, walk, come to the party. Repent from your good things, repent from your bad things. Come to a God who wants a relationship with you. Do you want to join the party? Do you want to engage culture because you've been engaged by a God, a Father that's compassionate, loving, and gracious, not just out to get you, but He is out to get you. And He proved it. Come in. That's, that's the story I love, and I refuse to let any other story drown out. We stand your feet as we're going to worship and close today. We're going to sing this song again. It'll take a little bit longer. But I want to invite you in, no matter where you are. Maybe you relate with one or the other. Maybe you've just been doing kind of duties and you've lost that relationship and your prayer with the Lord and just the Father's heart while trying to just do the right things. Maybe you've been in rebellion and God's going, hey, come on. I'm not waiting just to harm you. Like I'm ready to run to you as you start walking even a little bit towards me. Father, I ask right now in Jesus' name that you open our hearts to receive you and to worship you, to come into your kingdom, your party, your way, to fall in love with the Father who loves us. In Jesus' name, let's worship together.